This Wellness Couch podcast proudly brought to you by Steph Lowe's presentation at the upcoming Wellness Summit. It's called Fats, Fasting and Firmacuties. Catch the natural nutritionist and your favorite Wellness Couch hosts a world-class wellness exhibition and more than 600 like-minded people at the Wellness Summit, August 17 and 18 in Melbourne. Tickets at thewellnesssummit.com. The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by Melrose Health. Founded in 1979, Melrose Health has been delivering improved health over three decades by developing natural, delicious and innovative health foods from the best natural and organic ingredients. Their healthy kitchen oils range has just launched and includes my favourites, liquid coconut oil, grass-fed ghee and avocado oil. Visit melrosehealth.com.au or check out at Melrose Health on Instagram to learn more. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness and optimising your health, metabolism and longevity. While you're tuning in to today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 233 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Cindy O'Meara, nutritionist, filmmaker of What's With Wheat, best-selling author, international speaker, and founder of Changing Habits. In today's episode, Cindy and I discuss holistic farming and permaculture and how you can create your own version of this, even if you live in an apartment. We explore the soil microbiome and the impact of glyphosate on our microbiome, the importance of knowing your farmer and where your food comes from, the catch when it comes to the term organic in relation to green leafy vegetables and so much more. Hi, Cindy, and welcome back to the show. Thank you, Steph. Really looking forward to our discussion today. It has been a while since you've been on The Real Food Reel. Um, so I really wanted to explore with you, firstly, your the development of your holistic farm. Um, to set the scene, tell us more about this project of yours. Oh, oh gosh. You know, this project goes back um, to when I was living in Colorado. I, my whole life turned around when I was living in Colorado, you know. So first of all, I studied pre-med, did anthropology, realised food was important. And then I went on a, um, a two-month course of Outward Bound. And Outward Bound back then in the 80s was uh, I went and lived in the middle of nowhere. Um, that was my base. And I travelled to the middle of nowhere in the Colorado Rockies throughout Utah And I remember thinking, this is the simplistic life that I want to live. I want to live a life where I don't have to, you know, I grow my own food. um, I'm in the wild. So this was, you know, 40 years ago, I was thinking this way. And I remember writing in a book, my mum and dad had a 13 acre property. I remember writing, I'm going to live out there and I'm going to have my own fruit and veggies, you know, do like things like that. And I always had this dream of marrying a farmer and, having 12 children you know these were you know these were childhood dreams and then 19 20 year old dreams and and then I was about 21 22 and I was finishing my nutrition degree and I decided that it would be really good to have a health retreat and so I wrote that down at 21 so it's always been something that I've wanted to do so instead of marrying the farmer I had the I married the chiropractor and instead of having 12 kids I had three (laughs) Uh, and the farm came about 
uh, about five years ago, I, or maybe six years ago, I went to a manifesting retreat and I decided that it's time. I'm in my 50s, it's time. And so on April 6, 2015 at 2 p.m., I uh, was signed over this beautiful 60-acre property that was an old dairy farm that I knew nothing about, that I knew that I needed to spell it for some time and then start working on it. So it was spelled for a good year. I did up the little cottage so that I could enjoy the place. And then I watched the weeds grow uh, and I went into despair. And I asked, um, believe it or not, Costa, uh, I said, Costa, will you, you come and see my farm and tell me what I should do? And, and he just said, Senior, I'm just not going to have the time, but why don't you um, contact Marag Gamble? Marag lives down the road from you and she might be able to help you. So she came up and she didn't call weeds weeds. She called them primary. She said they stabilise the land. And she turned everything around for me and she said, the way I look at it, Cindy, you have a couple of options here. You can split the land up and uh, there are a lot of people who want to live on land that can't afford it and they can come in on a, a share basis and they can grow their own food and you can do something like that. Um, I can't remember what the second option one, but the third one was to employ a farmer. So I went back to my husband and I said, you know, these are our options. And he said, let's employ a farmer. So we employed a farmer for two years, a consultant really, um, who put us on the right track and we planted trees and we got cattle in and we started to holistically farm and um, we used permacultural principles and we um, made sure we, we kept water on our land and, and, you know, four years on, we now, I was just up there this morning, um, I, and four years on, I can see the difference between my neighbour's land and mine. So I look across at my neighbours and their land is looking very barren because they don't do holistic farming, they use farm chemicals. And I look at mine and mine is lush and green and full of growth. So what that tells me is that I'm um, putting carbon back into the soil, I'm retaining my water, um, on my soil because my soil has an ecology in it. And what it tells me about my neighbour's land is that they're not holding water. There's not a lot of ecology on that soil and they're not um, pulling carbon into the soil. So, um, I, you know, I see what is happening in, in um, that four-year period and we're now reaping beautiful foods out of it. So fruits are now coming um, and, of course, we have eggs for our, from our chickens. We've been having that the whole four years and we have a garden that grows everything uh and it was so funny uh about i can't remember when it was it's probably february march it was towards the end of summer beginning uh of autumn and i said to my son we need to do some planting and so we went and i purchased 75 dollars at the organic store of seedling now we have lived on that seedling since that time Six weeks later, it had just grown so much because it's so moist up here and it's so humid and it can be hot. And so everything just grew. And I'm still harvesting from that $75. And that's what's incredible is that we, we put a little bit of work in. We, we sow those beautiful seeds. It doesn't matter how big the, your land is, whether you live in a back, have a backyard, a veranda or a farm. It doesn't matter, an acreage or a, a big acreage you can reap the benefits of the sunlight. And that's what it is. It's soil and sunlight and water and, and a seed. And we have a permaculture uh, block as well. And so we have a, a, where we get the chickens in and the chickens just absolutely scrape it clean. And then we wait to see what grows. And like I've got in there at the moment, I've got mint and peppermint and nasturtiums and comfrey and rosemary and marjoram and stevia and what else? Warrigal greens are going nuts in there at the moment. Uh, some spring onion have popped up. So this is what just, you don't plant anything. That's just the, let's just see what pops up. Wow. That's so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it, look, it is. And it's been a journey and it continues to be a journey and a learning experience. And um, I, I just, I'm so fortunate. You know, that uh, if we plant more food, there was no reason for me ever to go to the grocery store again. I don't need to. I just live with the food that's seasonal uh, and we can survive on it. Except I could go and I actually, I fish off my, 
on my water as well, on my waterway. I have a net. And so um, I had a cat for 17 years and I fed the cat uh, fishing off my waterway. <laughs> so, so cool. yeah, it was cool. It was very cool. He loved it. He knew the minute I got my net up, he knew he was getting fed. So different to a more conventional scenario. But just um, excuse my ignorance, is holistic farming as not as simple but as foundational as that, sunlight and, and water and avoiding the chemicals that we see being used in modern-day farming? Well, there are so many farming terms out there at the moment. So holistic farming is based on Alan Savory's work. So Alan Savory was a gentleman, a South African gentleman, who watched the herds through Africa. Now, Africa's a dry continent, especially, you know, in the middle of it. Um, and I've been to Namibia and I've been to Botswana. And these herds, what they do is because there's predatory animals, they bunch up. And as they bunch up, they eat all the food, they poo and they wee, and then they move on, bunched. And then what happens is the birds come in and they eat the parasites out of their poo. They um, scratch the poo so they can get all the parasites and they fertilise the land. And then that land that is fertilised by water and uh, an animal, uh, faeces, then grows new growth. Mm-hmm. And this is the process of holistic farming. So what we do is that we fake that there's predators out there by putting an electric fence around our cattle and we bunch them up, we let them eat the food, we let them poo and that we um, on the land and then we move them on through electric fencing and then a couple of days later we bring our chickens in and our chickens eat all the parasites out of the poo, they scrape the poo and you don't, on our land you don't see um, cow patties because they're being spread by the chickens. And what's really interesting is that we had uh, put our cattle down the back paddock for four weeks while we all went on holidays uh, because we couldn't move them and so we just put them down the back paddock. And when we brought them up, two of them had escaped to somebody else's land and when we got them back into our holistic grazing patches, we noticed one of them was particularly covered in ticks, like hundreds and hundreds of ticks, which will make them very sick. So we ended up um, getting them up into the cattle crush and my son wiped the cow with neem and then we let the cow back into the paddock with the other cattle. And what we saw was the most incredible thing I have ever seen. So the neem would have made those ticks drop off and one bird, um, and I don't know what it was, an ibis or it was a a stork-looking bird, lands near that cow and starts pecking away at the ground. Within 20 minutes, there was probably 30 ibises around that cow pecking off those ticks as they fell on the ground. It was because we don't, you know, we don't seem to have a tick problem where we on our land. And is that because of the way we holistically farm and we got the chickens taking the parasites and the ticks and everything else out? I don't know, but it was one of the most incredible experiences to watch that. Um, That was nature at its best. So that's holistic farming. And then there's permaculture, and permaculture is a little bit like I described it. You you kind of see what um, comes up. You can plant things, but you just kind of let everything companion plant itself. So that's permaculture. And then there's regenerative farming, which I think is the umbrella that they all sit under so there's biodynamic farming so there's there are different things that people talk about and and then it's all about but the whole the whole thing about it is is not to use chemicals to use nature's way of doing things and to um basically have plants on there that are compatible and and work together and the animals all work together so it's it's something that I'm learning about and understanding and um, finding that this is one of the ways that we can look at carbon sequestering 
So one of the things that we do is that we can look at how much carbon our land is sequestering. And the more the ecology of this soil, so ecology being like our gut bacteria, so no doubt all of everybody that listens to you, Steph, will know about the microbiome, the microbiota, the gut bacteria. But we have an ecology in our gut and in our bodies that helps us with our immune system, helps us with um, making aromatic amino acids, helps with our B vitamins, makes vitamin K, um, makes butyrate for us in order to heal our digestive tract. So we know that this ecology is really important. And when we sterilize our gut, we become sick, very sick. It's the same with our land. Our land has an ecology that is diversified and helps plants bring up minerals, helps sequester carbon into the soil, helps break down plant matter that has died and needs to be broken down. So it's like at the, the soil's digestion. And, and so when we get that ecology right by using animals to do that and plants, then what ends up happening, we sequester more carbon into the soil. And they're saying that um, modern agriculture is 26% of the uh, problem that we're now having with climate change. And if we go to regenerative farming, then we take away that 26%. Uh, and so modern agriculture is, is doing the opposite to what regenerative agriculture is doing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, but not dissimilar to the food industry. We've just done it the wrong way from, a, I guess, convenience and... Um, production point of view for so long that you know these concepts might be new to a lot of people but in fact they're quite I guess they're very old ways of um, what we did before industry got in the way so to speak. Yeah and industry got in the way because they said that we have a starving world and we need to feed billions of people and we're never going to be able to do it the old ways and we need to do these new ways. Mm -hmm. But they've actually proven if we go back to local agriculture and back, back to where people are on the land and are part of the land and we grow seasonally, you know, we, we, grow, we eat seasonally because that's what's available in our area, then we'd, we'd be far better off. But, you know, modern agriculture that's also owned by modern, modern farmer has changed that. Mm. and genetically modified foods or hybridised foods, me mechanised uh, agriculture is changing our food and changing us. And one of the things that I recognise, I have been, you know, I'm an American citizen, uh, but I'm also an Australian, so I have dual citizenship. But I've been going to America since I was 14. And when I was going to America in the 70s, all of my uncle's, uh, and my grandfather were farmers. They grow, grew everything. They, they've now all lost their land. Big multinationals have basically bought it. Mm. And what is happening now is that those people that had the skills of the land can no longer work. And these are those people, and not necessarily my family, but these people that had the skills on the land but they can no longer work are becoming our new homeless. And when you go to America now, the homeless are everywhere. There are towns, country towns that have closed down because they've become ghost towns. And the homeless are those workers that would have been working on the land. Those, those, they, had, they only had the skills for that. They couldn't be white collar, but they had the skills to work on the land and they had the knowledge to work on the land and now they're kicked off the land and they're, they're, the, they're the new homeless. It's tragic, isn't it? You think big food, big pharma, and then there's big agriculture. I don't know if you use a different term for it, but it sounds very similar and it's, the outcomes are horrific. Yeah, and they're all in each other's pocket. Like look at Bayer. Bayer is a pharmaceutical company, um, part of IG Farben in World War II, part of making the, the gas for the gas chambers for the Jews to be killed. This is their legacy. Um, and, you know, they're a German company, they're a pharmaceutical company, they make vaccines, they make medications, and they've now bought Monsanto, which is the biggest seed company in the world. And when you see big pharma and big ag, 
and if you look at the chemical industry, that's become big food. We now have these multinationals that uh, basically run the world. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I just, I just love what you're doing. I just wanted to take a moment to, um, I guess, look at what your farm is doing and apply that to those of us that don't have access to the acreage just before we dive into some of the other amazing topics that I want to explore to you. Can you just make it clear that you can, you know, that you can do it when you have like a backyard or a veranda, like you touched on earlier? Yeah. I have to tell you something. Um, so normally I take all my compost up to the farm. It just, I just hold it and take it up to the farm. And my husband and I were going away for four weeks about, and I just dug a hole in my garden, which is just a garden that I keep throwing my lawn cuttings on. Um, so I dug a hole into this garden and I threw my compost. Well, I came home to tomato plants and pumpkin. <laughs> my pumpkin in four weeks has grown from, I don't know, a seed, I guess it was, into this ginormous plant that has, I counted yesterday, about 40 flowers on it, which will all turn into pumpkins. Wow. <laughs> so it's so easy mm. and we make it complicated. Our first and the, the first thing that we have to do is stop spraying our weeds with Roundup or whatever chemical is it that you're spraying your, your weeds with and make sure that nothing goes off your land that you can compost or put into the soil to build the soil up and build the ecology of the soil up. Then once you've built the ecology of the soil up, just throw your compost in, you've got your garden. Um, wow. But if you want to be a little bit more particular than that, then you can plant seedlings. And like I said, $75 of seedlings, March, and we're now looking, I don't know when this is going to go to air, but <laughs> you and I are recording this and it's late June. Oh, no, it's early July. Mm. Uh, and I am still being fed by that $75 worth of seedlings. So you think about, and you think about, you go to the store and you buy organic green leafy vegetables, all your organic herbs, all your organic fruits, um, because I planted the fruits four years ago. Um, you know, you think about going to the store, what that is going to cost you every single week. Then you're going to have to buy it in plastic or plastic tubs. And I don't know if people know this, but all leafy greens in Australia, organic or not organic, must be sanitised. It is government regulation, government law, that it must be sanitised. So non-organic, use something called Nature Seal, and I've written a whole article on Nature Seal. And organic, use another chemical um, that they, you know, that they're inorganic. You've got to realise that organic um, I don't 100% agree with, and there are reasons for that. Um, but if you plant your own, you, know, you just go out and pick it that day and you put it in your salad or you go out and pick your tomatoes that day and you put it in your salad or your pepper. Uh, and if you've got sweet potato, you just go out and pull them up, a couple of them, and you have your sweet potato. So, And you can do it in pots as well. The other day I was at uh, a food store and I noticed that they were growing herbs in glass jars. Oh, and all they did was put the dirt in the glass jar. So go to somewhere that they're not spraying chemicals and ask if you can have a bit of their soil, put it in a glass jar, put a seedling of mint or uh, rosemary or, or something like that. There's um, this amazing place across from a place where I, I eat quite a bit. Um, I, I love to go for coffee or for breakfast because I know their principles. But across the road from them, I, I don't know who lives there, but their whole place is, is a herb and vegetable garden. And they're just on a, uh, um, you know, probably 600 squares. Mm. But I want to go to them sometimes when I'm not up at the farm and say, oh, can I have some of your rosemary? Yeah, I'm <laughs> sure they wouldn't mind. I'm sure it's <laughs> they, have, they have so much. It's incredible. Mm. And they have chickens in the backyard. They don't have a dog. They have chickens in the backyard. So a dog costs you, chickens feed you. Yeah. And, they, and chickens are just gorgeous. They're just the best pets to have. They, they know you. You feed them your scraps. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, I think it's this mindset that we're in that we don't have time and that we don't have the space. But back in the Second World War in America, they had these things called victory gardens, B 
because they couldn't produce enough food because all of the farmers had gone to war, everybody had to have a garden in their backyard to feed not only themselves but, you know, the workers that were in the artillery places or, you know, this was the way we had to do it. And I, I sometimes think we almost have to think that way. We have to think of food security these days because we don't know where our food's coming from, where it's come from, how it's being produced, unless you go to your farmer's markets and you ask questions of the farmers and not somebody who's gone to Rockley Markets in Brisbane, picked up the food and bought it up <laughs> pretending they're a farmer. Mm. You want to talk to the farmer and my beautiful farmer, Nick, um, so I, I don't grow everything. So every week I get a, a community-supported um, agricultural box and mix my farmer. And, um, you know, he goes to the markets and he actually introduces you, hi, I'm your farmer, what do you want to know? Mm. So that's what I love. I, you know, I ask the questions of people in farmers' markets. I'm with you. I think you've absolutely got to ask questions because food quality is everything. And the other benefit, as you mentioned, with the $75 feeding you for four or five months, um, it's a really great way to make this more affordable. As you know, Cindy, there's the time argument and then there's also the cost argument of food quality, which it is an issue if you're going to the big chain supermarkets and trying to buy organic and grass-fed and free range. But, of course, there are ways around that. And I think growing your own is fantastic for the back pocket, um, not to mention the health benefits, of course. Yeah, yeah, I, I agreed. And everybody does. They complain, oh, it's too expensive or, um, yeah, and then they go and eat uh, bad food. And I think it's a priority, Steph. Yeah. I really think it's a priority because priorities, um, what is your prior priority? Is it going out and buying the, um, the, the next best outfit or is it more about your food and, the, and, the, and what you're consuming? And I think we're in a, a society where I think our priorities are, are shifting. The fact that Costa won silver at the Logies is showing me that people's priorities are changing, that here's a man that is into gardening and organics and growing your own and getting back into the garden to put food onto the kitchen table to feed and nourish your family to heal this nation. When somebody like that it does so well, that's when it's, um, you know, so wonderful. Yeah, definitely a really great awareness campaign. Um, mm. And it's where we need to go, but I agree it's about, I guess, reassessing your priorities. But I, I think that we have made it complicated again, as you say, like the fact that you can do it on your veranda or even inside your kitchen as a way to, to start, obviously mm. at a different scale to perhaps your farm, Cindy, but it's still going to make a difference to the food that you eat and the health of the environment. And it has to start somewhere. And, you know, we, we can't be letting someone else do it. I think we need to take action ourselves. Yeah. And if you want to support a local farmer, and I think about the young men and women that are out there that do want to farm, but they need people to support them. They need people who will buy from them. I had a young couple come to me and they wanted to work on my farm. They've decided to go to Byron now. But here was a hungry young couple. They were both chefs. They had both done their apprenticeship um, learning about permaculture and biodynamic gardening. And all they wanted to do was do community-supported agriculture where they know. So what is CSA? It is the, these farmers know that every single week, that they have 300 people who have subscribed to their boxes, let's just say, or 50 people have subscribed to their boxes. So they know six weeks before that they can plant um, 200, 300, whatever their subscription is, broccoli, and they will be able to sell it because they've pre-sold it. Or they can plant months before the ginger, or they can plant the potatoes. So my um, Mick, who does my potatoes because I don't um, have any potatoes planted, you know, he knows that I am going to support him on his potatoes. And I think that if we can, as an individual, find somebody who's doing that or go to our farmer's markets, then we become part of the solution. We are no longer the problem. I can't walk into Coles and Woolworths 
mm. anymore and purchase it, anything. I, I was in there the other day. I had to purchase some, um, um, I wanted some, um, oh, what's the, the name of that New Zealand um, product? It's anyway, it's a, a sustainable cleanser, cleaner, cleaner. And I needed to go in there and I needed a cucumber also for my recipe. And I'm looking at the cucumber going, can I purchase that? Can I ethically purchase that cucumber or can I do without that cucumber? It was like that. That's how I feel. So then I go to the organic section and I'm thinking, okay, I'll go to the organic section and save that cucumber, but it's covered in plastic. Yeah. So then I'm in this dilemma. Um, and so I did without the cucumber. <laughs> so this is mm. yeah you just but you just you, you get to that point I think it, you know with nutrition I got to the point where once I know I can't unknow it and now I'm now I'm because of this farm I'm four years later once I know this about agriculture I can't unknow this anymore mm. and when I know this I can do one thing better than I did last year or the year before. And people have to realise that this has been a real growth for me. I've been doing this for 40 years. So they can forgive themselves if they don't plant something in their backyard, that they're just going to their farmer's market and community and, and or their community-supported agricultural boxes. Just start there. That's all they have to do and they are the solution. And then they might go, well, maybe I can put that compost in that garden now that I've made my garden, you know, like it is, and a pumpkin will grow or a tomato will grow. <laughs> and you do it just accidentally. Yeah. So such a simple way yeah. to start and to start contributing. I love that you've broken that down because it, it can be quite overwhelming for some people who are new to this space, but yeah, like you can't unlearn it. So taking action is where you can make the difference. Um, I love the concept of the soil microbiome. And I just think the link between the quality of the soil and of course the quality of the food that it grows, which then has the flow and effect to our health is really a fascinating area because we know that soil quality is not what it used to be. So can you speak to that a little bit more and, and I guess what you've learned around that link between the soil microbiome and our microbiome? Sure. Wow. That's, um, that's a huge topic mm. uh, because we're destroying the ecology of the soil. So how are we destroying the ecology of the soil? Number one, we're doing monocultures. Mm -hmm. uh, number two, we are spraying chemicals on it that are actually antibiotics and do kill the ecology of the soil. So it's not the first time that you kill the ecology of the soil. It's not the second time, but it's a, a growing cycle that if you continue to uh, use chemicals on the soil and if they do have antibiotic pro properties, then eventually the soil will be killed. So when we bought our land four years ago, I could turn my land and not find a worm. But if you turn my land now, you will find 10 worms. And, and that's when I know that the ecology is growing. When I first um, came onto my land, I didn't see any mushrooms or fungi of any sort. Now I see pop-ups of fungi everywhere. So then I know that there's rhizosomes under the soil that connect the soil. You know, they've figured out that plants communicate via these amazing networks under the soil and microbes are all part of that and the rhizosomes are all part of that and the, the worms are all part of that. So when you start to see this growth happen in your soil, you know that you're bringing back the ecology of the soil. And it's like our our gut you know if you're um what you do is you make your own soil so from the food that you consume those uh, that you have digestive juices but it's the bacteria working on the resistant starches and the insoluble fibers that make your soil and then you'd excrete that soil out and the whole process starts again because that soil then adds to our soil um and and you do that with cattle as well you know if you're not continually putting paras you know anti-parasitic um, chemicals into those cattle or spraying them then their ecology is there and then the chickens come through and eat the bad the bad ones but what I find really interesting is and if we can go to the topic of roundup and glyphosate 
because that is the most heavily sprayed pesticide. It's a herbicide, but it's the most heavily sprayed pesticide that um, the world has ever seen. And in the last decade, 75% of that chemical has been sprayed on soils and crops and uh, community grounds and playgrounds and sports grounds and verges and main roads and forests and land care areas that has ever been sprayed in the history of its making, which it was uh, patented back in the 1960s as a chelating agent. So what they did was they threw it into like big boilers and they wanted to get the minerals out of the boilers and then they would add water to it um, to this chemical and then tip it out into onto the land. And what it would do is it would scrape the metal, you know, the irons. So you might have had some some metal that you didn't want um, on the boiler and it would completely scrape it all off by a chemical reaction and then they would dump it out onto the grass or to the land and they realised that it was broad spectrum. It would just kill everything. So it was then patented by Monsanto in the late 60s as a herbicide. And by 1974, it was uh, put onto the market, but it was firstly put onto the market for the backyard gardener. And then uh, in 1995, it became a product that they called, um, that supported GMO crops. So it was called Roundup Ready Soya, Roundup Ready Canola, Roundup Ready Cotton, Roundup Ready, um, not so much corn, they, they did corn very differently, but there was Roundup Ready everything in the in this GMO stakes. So we sprayed more and more of this product. Then around the year 2000, Monsanto promoted it as a desiccant. Now a desiccant is something that um, will dry and kill a crop. So it was noted that in wet areas, and that was in Australia, in the Canada, northern parts of the US, um, in wet areas where they had a shorter growing season or there was a lot of rain and they wanted the crop to ripen together and for all the riffraff, you know, so um, the leaves and everything to die and dry out, they decided that it was a really good desiccant. And because it was safe for humans, it only affected bacteria, fungi and um, plants, they, they said it wouldn't affect humans. And so more and more people started to use it a week before harvest as a, as a desiccant. And um, that was the year 2000. Then in 2010, it was patented as a broad-spectrum antibiotic. So we're spraying our food weeks before harvest with an antibiotic. And some people say, well, you know, it just needs a resting period. But the damage that glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup, does to the plant is, is done in the way that it stops it producing a pathway called the shikimate pathway. And this pathway makes tyrosine, which is an aromatic amino acid, tryptophan, phenylalanine. Now, these three amino acids are precursors for our neurotransmitters. It also stops the production of folic acid and another compound called enterobactin. And enterobactin carries iron for the plant. And when you spray a plant with Roundup or glyphosate, it stops this mechanism and makes the plant vulnerable to a type of AIDS, so acquired immune deficiency syndrome. And what happens is while the destruction of the shikimate pathway doesn't kill the plant, what kills it is the opportunistic parasitic bacteria that's in the soil that is not killed by the Roundup comes into the plant and over a couple of days will destroy the plant. And the bacteria that is in the soil that is vulnerable to the glyphosate um, are killed. So that ecology is killed. The, the pathological bacteria stay alive 
And what they're finding now after, you know, 15, 20 years of spraying glyphosate is that it's becoming more effective um, because it builds up the parasitic bacteria in the soil or the um, pathological bacteria in the soil, but it's killed all the other bacteria in the soil. It's a nightmare, Steph, and I, I hope I've explained that very, very clearly for people to really understand what is happening because people are saying, oh, we don't need to use as much anymore. But the reason <laughs> we're not using it as much anymore is that we are building up that pathological bacteria. And that pathological bacteria is showing um, as listeria, staph. All of these things um, are able to withstand um, Roundup. And, and what's really scary is that uh, we are having more and more security um, food outbreaks than we've ever had before, and it's listeria. I, I, like I think cucumbers were just taken off the market and yeah. lettuces are being taken off the market because we can't withstand this, these, these. We are, are affected by them because our microbiome is being decimated by it. So it's not just in our agriculture that this is happening. This is happening on our sports grounds. And it's not that one thing uh, that that one time you're exposed to that it kills you. It's the build-up. It's the constant exposure of it that causes the problems. And, and in America at the moment, you know, we're having, uh, there has been three court cases. The first court case was against glyphosate and it causing a gardener's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And, yeah, that was um, millions, wasn't it? Oh, it, was, it started at $279 million and I, went, I think it was low, later reduced to $84 million. Okay. Then the second plaintiff went, was $80 million. And then the third plaintiffs were two, um, a married couple, a husband and wife, um, who had used Roundup for 30 years and they both got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma together. And they got $2 billion dollars. Wow. And I said billion. I didn't say million. <laughs> and there are 14,500 plaintiffs waiting for their time in court. And then you see the Australian Pesticide and Veterinary Medicine Authority who are the regulators of glyphosate and they have regulated 596 glyphosate-containing products in Australia saying it's perfectly safe, it's all hysteria, don't worry about it, we know what we're doing. And yet they are paid by Bayer, who now own Monsanto, to sell the product. So it's... Um, it's huge. And it, definitely it's like dysbiosis of the soil, it's dysbiosis of our gut. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously, unfortunately, for a lot of people, when it is that long-term exposure, it's these tragic health conditions. And the precedent has been set now. You know, I think the, the cases which probably go back as... Um, early as 2013, I believe, will, yeah, it'll set the way for the awareness to grow and stop being hidden by these big companies that have told us to go away for so long to stop the truth coming out. Yeah. But we also, um, we have to look at our farmers and I think they're caught in a big, a big problem because mm -hmm. the public are going to demand the overseas markets are going to demand. And whether they think it's hysteria or whether they think that this is science, it doesn't matter. But I, I was reading an article um, on Facebook and, you know, they're, they're basically saying there's nothing wrong with it. It's all lies. Um, and these are farming families and I understand why they're doing this. It's, it's like going to a medical doctor and, and just saying, you know, and I'm, I'm just making a scenario here and saying, oh, everything that you've learned for the last 15 years, you know, you did six years of university, then you did two years of intern, and then you decided you wanted to be a GP, so now you've done another two to three years. So, and then you've been doing this for the last couple of years. Everything you've done is all based on the pharmaceutical lie. If you say that to them, they're going to back up and they're going to go, no, it's not. That's wrong. You're wrong. And they will prove everything. And, I, and, I, and remember, this is a scenario I'm saying. I'm not saying this for sure. I'm just saying this is a scenario. Or if somebody said to me, oh, Cindy Food's got nothing to do with disease, you're wrong. 
for the last 40 years, you're full of, you know, you're full of BS. Mm. It's, it's all wrong. I'm going to back myself all the way because this is what I know. And I've actually had somebody say that to me. Jack Cruz, uh, Dr. Jack Cruz, neurosurgeon, saying nutrition's got nothing to do with it. It's all to do with light magnetism and five, and um, what is the other one? Light magnetism and water. <laughs> so I, uh, it's a tough one, Steph, um, for our farmers because they don't know any different now. They know that they don't have to till their soil. They just have to use Roundup before seeding. And if they want to bring their harvest in, then it's far easier that if you desiccate your crop. And people are saying, oh, Australia, we don't desiccate it. It's, that's a lie. Mm. I speak to farmers all the time. They say, do you desiccate your crops? And they go, yeah, we do. I said, what do you do it with? Roundup. These are chickpea farmers. These are canola farmers. These are wheat farmers. And all that wheat is collected and taken to a silo. And all of that wheat is taken from a silo to a ship. And I don't care who's spraying and who's not spraying. It's going to be contaminated. And, and yeah, and it's just, um, and this is why I think as an individual, we have unbelievable power. Mm. We have power more than you will ever know. We just have to choose the farmer that's doing the right thing and buy his or her food. And we just have to stay local as much as we can and stop buying packaged foods that um, are full of chemicals and food additives. I, um, uh, I'm trying to think where I put my research on it. I'm trying to think if it's somewhere near here, but you know the vegan meat? Yes. Okay, so the whole vegan meat thing is I've been trying to figure out how they're doing meat flavouring. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I couldn't quite figure out how they were doing the flavouring. And so I thought I'll just research. And I tell you what, it's, it's sneaky. You've really got to look at, at what they're doing. And so there's this new ingredient in vegan meat called soya leg hemoglobin. Okay. And, and what it is, um, is, is it's a genetically modified bacteria that makes um, a chemical uh, that, that they, and it's based on soya as the substrate. And then what they do, I went to the patent on it, and then they add anywhere between 100 chemicals, anywhere between, you know, 1 to 100 chemicals. That's their first adding. It's a little bit like a natural flavouring. But I, I, look at the, like I look at the ingredients and I go, doesn't anybody look at them and go, what is a Lego hemoglobin? Yeah, I know. What is even that? <laughs> so it's something to do with the heme. Mm. So that's what gives it the the meaty taste the, the bleeding and all they action. have to, yeah the bleeding action mm. and all they have to do is add different chemicals to it to taste like bison or chicken or um, deer or beef or lamb or duck or <laughs> they ju- it's it's just incredible and so they're saying that they're adding micronutrients to create flavor when they're really adding chemicals is that yeah, if you look at the patent, and um, yeah. I'll write an article on it because I've only just discovered this in the last week. Okay. Um, but it's uh, it's uh, it's incredible. I mean, as doing. always, they do a very good job of masquerading it to be healthy. The whole greenwashing conversation, because you know, soy is a plant, and then we add these natural micronutrients, and they use the word fermentation, and it suddenly it seems like it's a good decision, especially for those that um, are, I guess you know, I think maybe people that are new to vegan are naturally looking for that replacement. Whereas I really don't see the point of if you're not going to eat meat, why are you looking for a fake meat or, um, you know, fake chicken nuggets or whatever it might be. I just don't understand the point of that. Um, but yeah, definitely getting beyond just the labels and understanding more about the ingredients is so important. Yeah, it is. And it is about like, like, Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride said, just get back into the kitchen and feed and nourish your family to heal this nation. Don't think that the food industry are concerned about your health. They're only concerned about the profits for their shareholders and themselves. And the, the it's a billion-dollar market, the fake meat market. Um, I remember when I was a vegetarian, it was TBP, but I wouldn't touch that stuff. It was called textured vegetable protein. And basically what this is is TBP masquerading as something different. And they're because they're masters at um, trickery 
with your taste buds and with your senses of smell and, and with your mouthfeel. They're masters of trickery. Um, and they're getting better and better at it, but they can just throw a bunch of chemicals together. And when you look at the ingredients of fake meat, it is all just chemicals. It's, it's the biggest ingredient is water. Then it's soy protein concentrate, natural flavors, uh, potato protein, not sure how they're making that because it is a carbohydrate, but anyway, methyl cellulose, yeast extract, which when you look at yeast extract, that's scary. Cultured dextrose, food starch modified, soya ligar hemoglobulin, <laughs> um, soy protein isolate, mixtocophorols, which will be fake, um, zinc gluconate, which will be mined, oh, and so on and so on. <laughs> um, and it's the same thing is happening and we just have to go, all right, I'm going to make a stand on this. I'm going to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And the way to I'm going to do that is I'm going to be at the farmer's markets. But I found Saturday morning at the farmer's market wouldn't always work for me. So that's why the community supported agriculture boxes. Um, and you'll find them there everywhere now. There are young farmers that just want to farm and they need the stability that you are going to buy their food. Um, I just find those boxes um, the best because it arrives on my doorstep Friday morning. I've even given my guy the key to get into my house to put it in the fridge if I'm not going to be there. <laughs> and, and doesn't it challenge you to use new ingredients that are seasonal? Like that's what I love about it is that it's yeah. not the standard shopping list where we get stuck in our, you know, our rut and our staples each week and each fortnight because it is seasonal that, you know, I'm challenged to find new ways to include these foods. And I think that's great for diversity and for gut health yeah. and for the environment as well. Yeah, it is. And it's the same on my farm. I go and I go, what, what have I got? You know, what's, yeah. I, 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 I planted these mustard leaves. I had no idea what they're going to taste like. Oh, they're my absolute favourite now. And, but only because I didn't know what they were and I thought, well, I'll plant them and I'll see what I can use them in. And, yeah, yeah. and nasturtium. That. Yeah, and kappa limes, you know, what do you do with kappa limes and kappa lime leaves? And, um, you know, they're usually just in Thai dishes, but I, I actually put them in my teas now. I love them with my herbal teas. So you soon learn new ways to do things. You do, absolutely. And then these are foods that we've, you know, eaten for centuries. I think that's really important when we look at the evolutionary perspective, you know, then in comparison to the the soy leg hemoglobin, um, Apparently, yeah, yeah. I can't even say it, but apparently it was a 28-day trial done on rats to test the safety and efficacy. And, Jeez. I mean, that's not good enough. Why are we encouraging this to be the new meat? I mean, it's, I mean, it's a whole other conversation that I'm sure we could explore at another time. But, yep. like, we've just lost our perspective, really. Well, we, we really have. You know, there's a new book out, and it's by Matthew Evans, who's also known as the... Gourmet Farmer, I think, the Gourmet Farmer. His book's called On Eating Meat and he clearly talks about our plants in monocultures and the death of um, major, like, like if there's a plague of mice, they will kill those mice by poisoning them. And he says alone in Western Australia, they kill a billion mice for our wheat grain. He also points out that um, I think it was an apple farmer said that it, it, possums, he'll kill about 130 possums a year so they don't eat his apples. So this vegetarian, vegan movement that is about saving the animals, we need to look at the big picture. We need to look at our agricultural practices. We need to look at how we're farming. And that goes for all of our our grains and our nuts and our fruits and everything. And that's why if we go to our local farmers and our small-time farmers, they're not going to have the plagues that we're seeing on the monocultures. They're not going to need the chemicals that we, we have to have on monocultures. So when we have a, bit, a bigger perspective and understanding of we need animals to fertilise our land, and, I, look, I love Lyra Keith, I think Lyra Keith, says it really well and she's in Pete Evans' uh, documentary, The the Miracle, uh, the, the Miracle, what is it? Oh, I can't even remember the name of his Magic documentary. 
Oh, the magic pill. That's right. Mm -hmm. So he, he talks, she's on that and you can listen to her on podcasts. She's just brilliant. And she was a vegan, a strict vegan for 20 years and she ruined her health. And she decided she wanted to grow her own foods at some point. And every time she'd go to the markets to grow her own food, she had to get blood and bone, otherwise a chemical. So all of a sudden her whole perspective started to change about the importance of animals in agriculture and, um, and, and you know, everything that was happening on the planet. And I think it's worth listening to someone who was a vegan for that long. I was vegetarian for 16 years and it wasn't good for me either. My health suffered and I, it's only in... in um, when I look back that I understand what was happening to my body, but I just kept thinking, you know, I need to give up something else or I need to give up more of it and I can't, I can't eat dairy now. And, and then that's when you become the vegan. But then when you realise you need to come back to food, back to good food. Oh, absolutely. And we see that in a lot of people, even very prominent vegans that years down the track have unfortunately learn the hard way and it's conversations like this that can inspire those current vegans to prioritize food quality because we see a lot of people sacrificing their own health because of their passion which you know it's beautiful to be passionate but you can't have anything without your health and so substituting these fake ingredients is just not the answer Mm. you're right you 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 know people have have more mental illness than we've ever had before we have more depression and if we're not doing the right thing, our physical and our mental body does break down or our, our mind and our physical body breaks down. And you're right. It's all very well to have a passion. But if it's, if it's not serving you as somebody who can make a difference on the planet, then I don't know if it's worth that ideology or that philosophy. And look at what ideology and philosophy will not only serve you but will also serve your family, your community and um, the animals and the planet as a whole. Beautiful. Absolutely agree. It's a fascinating area and I think we can all start small and look for ways that we can compost at home or even just start by growing herbs in our glass jars as long as we can get some really good quality soil that know that, you know, there are things that we can do and it starts with us taking action. So I just wanted to give you the opportunity to share anything else that you wanted to in our final minutes together, Cindy, and it's been so great to explore this topic with you. Oh, gosh. I I think I've given people a lot to think about. But like you, I, yeah, I think the most important thing is education. Mm-hmm. And don't take my word for it. Educate yourself with people. We've talked about books. You know, we've talked about movies. We've talked about people. Go out and educate yourself about what is really happening out there. I, and I have to give you this example. I had a reporter um, with me just before we started talking and I said glyphosate once or maybe Roundup once, I can't remember. And he said to me after the interview, he said, what's Roundup? And I was flabbergasted I because I mm. thought that it was a fairly talked about, you know, thing that's out there at the moment in the media and here's a journalist asking what's Roundup. Wow. So um, we have to become educated. And if you are not educated about it, and I, I, can, I can't imagine people listening to you are not. So it's about them then telling their neighbour who might be spraying Roundup and just say, hey, here, I want to give you some information about this and here's the alternative. And there's a really good start. But become educated, I'd say, as my, my final words is, you must be educated and be very selective about who you're getting your education from. Uh, and people that are not, you know, got billions to lose like Monsanto and Bayer, um, but scientists like Christopher Exley, like Robert Kennedy, who's an environmental lawyer, you know, Christopher Exley's, he's the most humblest of men and yet he's been, you know, researching aluminium and its effect on systems and the human system for 30 years. If anybody knows anything, it's him. So find people like that and, and I know that you interview them and I interview them and, and I write about them and you write about them. So these are the people we search out that are, are out there and they're heads down and they don't realise that there's a controversy about aluminium out there but they know what it's doing to the human body. Yeah. Yeah. Knowledge is power. I couldn't agree yes. more. 
Yes. Thank but you again acting for on your that time. knowledge is more powerful. Yeah, isn't it? I know. Yeah. Absolutely. The application is what's going to make the difference. Mm. Thanks again, Cindy. It was so great to chat. Thanks, Steph. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Reel. The 2019 Wellness Summit is almost here. I love being at these events. They're always such a great, positive environment. It's been really great to um, listen to like-minded people and to um, meet a few people, actually. I've been to every summit and I've been to every one and I'll always keep coming. It's always inspiring. It's been a real eye-opener. We're actually signed up to go to the breakthrough now. It's very motivating. I think it's great to listen to people who are inspired. And there's always something to learn and something to take away. I think uh, for myself and giving myself that um, opportunity to, to learn. There's so much going on in life and everything that you can get distracted and forget the things that you should be doing. And this always reminds you to get back on track and, and um, to focus on the things that are important, a holistic help. Just do it, yeah. Just yeah, suck it up and do it. It's uh, it could be life changing, yeah. I would say it's awesome, and it's the start of changing your life. Come along, see what it's about, and enjoy it. It's an amazing event with like-minded, positive people, and you can't help but um, walk away feeling great. Positive Mentor presents the 2019 Wellness Summit, August 17 and 18 in Melbourne. Can you afford to miss out? Tickets at thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.